0: Hello, my name is Jack Kemper. Today's scripture is from Philippians 2, 1 to 11, imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, about each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hello
1: again, everybody. Would you join me in Philippians chapter 2? It's what Jack so wonderfully read. Dude, he even wore a tie to our scripture reading. I love that. So join me and Jack in Philippians chapter 2. In the first half of our talk, we're going to be looking at our first core practice, which is to follow Jesus. And the second half of our talk, we're going to look at the example that we just saw in Philippians chapter 2. Of course, it's the new year, which at the Neighborhood Church means we are diving into our five core practices. And like I just said, our first core practice is to follow Jesus. Before we talk about following Jesus, I got to say, there's a reason we call them core practices practices. Because a practice is something that's meant to be lived. And the Christian faith is something that's meant to be lived, not just believed. It's your belief that informs your practice. So each year at the neighborhood church, those who are part of our community are invited to recommit, reevaluate to these five core practices as we follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. So that's why our first core practice is to follow Jesus. Here's what we mean. We commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday life. That's a paraphrase of one of my favorite authors and thinkers, Dallas Willard, and I love his way of getting at the nitty-gritty of being with Jesus, to sit with him, to be uh, transformed by his presence, revealing to us the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to be with him so that we might Learn from him to read scripture, the story of Jesus and how all the word of God points to the capital W word of God, Jesus the Christ. So that then we can take that being and learning up and into our actual life to live like him. Some of you might say, well, OK, um, how does that really work? Well, let me give you another Dallas Willardism in addition to that core practice. To choose to do what Jesus would do if he were in your shoes. How do we know what Jesus would do? See our core practice. To be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. So many Christians have given Jesus a bad name this week And every day when we fail to actually follow Jesus and this is remarkable in a culture that would still claim in many circles to be a Christian nation but does our nation actually follow Jesus you see I'm afraid that we have this disconnect where we think it's okay to worship Jesus And not actually follow him. And here's something remarkable about the gospel stories that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As we see Jesus working and ushering in the reign of God in everyday existence, he never asks people to worship him. you believe it? It's true. Jesus never goes up to someone and says, Worship me. Now, people do worship him, because that's a natural response to encountering the living Christ. But Jesus never asks people to worship him. No, Jesus invites people to follow him. We see that time and time again, follow me. In fact, the generation after Jesus, the earliest Christians were known as those who belonged to the way. Jesus himself said, I am the way. So earliest in their conception of what it meant to give their life to Jesus was not just to worship him, but to worship him in such a way that leads to a lifestyle of following him, to be with, to learn from, how to live like. Do you see the difference? This Wednesday, we saw how crucial that difference is and how horrifying we can get it disconnected. We saw it Wednesday as this group of rioters stormed the nation's capital. And that was simply just the latest, not the first, in a dramatic display of how our culture can honor Jesus with their lips. We can say the right things, tweet the right things. We can have our politicians stand up and grandstand about honoring God and in God we trust, and then completely deny Him by our lives. We see that disconnect and how we can fight for Jesus. And we can fight for Him in this culture with weapons and words that Jesus would never take up or offer up, We can see that disconnect, to see how Jesus would never use or utter the kinds of words and weapons as we fight for him. We also see, of course, how we can vote for Jesus and biblical principles, however you and I may define them. We can see how we can honor and fight and vote and yet fail to love the neighbor right next to us. You see, we so desperately want to get the will of God into our culture that we have failed to get the will of God into our own lives as we follow Jesus. You see, it's one thing to try and impose this on everyone else, and it's another to say, wait... Maybe when Jesus said the hard thing like love your neighbor as yourself and love God with everything, it did mean that person regardless of their race, ethnicity, status, orientation, background, creed, or class. Maybe when Jesus actually asks something of us, we're supposed to live it instead of just tick a box and say it. You see, American Christian culture has time and time again proven this crucial difference between worshiping and following, and the crucial disconnect between true worship that leads to true living. You see, we think we can worship Jesus and not follow Jesus, which is why we're talking about it in the beginning of this new year for those of us that say we belong to the Jesus way. There's a story that I've shared a time or two or three <laughs> in the neighborhood church. and It's a story from one of Amy's homeless friends many years ago that she had gotten to know and we, our family, had gotten to know. And what was interesting, I remember in this one conversation when we were talking about where she grew up and how she grew up not far from where Amy grew up and how she had experienced a lot of hurt and harm and brokenness and Yet, in her earliest days, she remembered going to her grandma's church. She remembered sitting in grandma's Sunday school class. She remembered walking an aisle and confessing Jesus and praying the prayer. And she had these fond memories of the Jesus culture and church early in her life. And then, the hurt The pain, the brokenness, the temptation. And as she got older, she drifted further and further from that confession and further and further from a way of life that she wound up recognizing actually looked nothing like following Jesus. And she had this dramatic revelation that whatever beautiful thing that was that happened in her earliest days, it had not borne itself out in the life that she was living. And so she came to this traumatic encounter with Jesus later in life, after all of this struggle with addiction and temptation and hurt that had been given to her. And she said, I realized that no one was going to follow Jesus for me. Now, we haven't seen her in some time, but I will never forget what she said. Because it is a startling revelation for us today. No one right now can follow Jesus for you. Not our culture, not your pastor, not your small group, not your family that you were born into. Not any ritual can do the work of what Jesus invites us to do when he says, Follow me, the way, the truth, and the life. And you will find true and lasting eternal life. No one's going to do that for you. And this, I think, is remarkable because in her encounter with Jesus, he did what he always did. He invited her to follow him. And now and again, we see how crucial that invitation is when on Wednesday, you and I saw all of those images and videos where Christian flags with Jesus's name on them mingle with Confederate flags and Trump 2020 with AK-47s and all that. When those things mingle, it's time for us to look again at Jesus's invitation. Is this how Jesus lived? Is this what it looks like to choose to do what Jesus would do, whether or not his name is on the flag. Now more than ever, we have to recognize that this pandemic has actually gotten worse. And when we're not gathering as often and in the ways that we ordinarily do and the ways that we want to, we got to realize that nobody's going to follow Jesus for us. But it's up to us to be with Him, to learn from Him, how to live like Him. And when people of color are again, month after month after month, calling for white America to wake up and reckon with what they've always seen and experienced, That this so-called Christian nation that is steeped in idolatrous nationalism, that's steeped in racism and built on the backs of black and brown and indigenous people, might not actually be Christian. Because to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. And what our history has shown us is that this nation looks often too unlike Christ. Maybe it's time... No one's going to do it for us, that we still bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not just of June in 2020 when this was elevated to our national consciousness, this idea of systemic racism. Maybe, just maybe, Wednesday reminds us again that there's still so much work to be done, and we as white American evangelicals need to repent and bear fruit. As we continue to follow Jesus, because our invitation is to follow Jesus because nobody's going to do it for you. And this is our invitation, whether it's for your first time to hear Jesus calling to you to say, come to me, find life in me. I'm the way, the truth and the life. You can say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I give you my life. I worship you. And that worship leads to a life lived that's eternal in quality, right now, heaven on earth, transforming and invading your whole being and your world, but also eternal in quantity, the life that begins now and will never end, because Jesus, my friends, I'm here to tell you, is still alive and beckoning. So whether it's your first time or your one millionth time, the invitation for you right now, here's your RSVP, RSVP open up the envelope, it's addressed to you, he says, follow me. Right now. Because the only everyday life you have to live is this life right now, moment to moment. Every moment, an invitation to take a step toward him and follow him. Now, that's what we mean when we say following Jesus. But don't just take my word for it. Let's look again at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We're going to see the example in this last half of our message We're going to see the example of Jesus in the biggest, grandest, most beautiful way so that we can live like Jesus in the smallest, most elemental, relational way. We're going to see the biggest way so that we can live it in the smallest ways. Look back with me in Philippians chapter 2. You see, in that middle section there, beginning in verses 6 and 11, that's the example I'm talking about. And it's one of the earliest hymns or poems used by the earliest Christians. Remember, those that belonged to the way? You see, it was a common practice in their day to give leaders the poetic treatment. You know what I mean? Not just to make a movie about them or biography about them, but to give them a song that elevates and inspires us and gives us an example to reach toward. You with me? You see, a little more than 300 years before, Jesus was Alexander the Great. You've heard of him. But I was looking at him this week, and this man, in his 20s, conquered a whole empire that stretched from Greece to India, Northern Africa, Western Asia. This dude, in his 20s, was becoming one of the emperors of the largest empire the world had ever seen. Well, in my 20s, I was just trying to get a full-time job and start paying some of my student loans. And this man, by his death at age 33, took on Alexander the Great, the title. And he got the poetic treatment. Closer to Jesus' day was Caesar Augustus. Students of the Bible would recognize that name, and he got the poetic treatment. Treatment. He got the hymns and the accolades as if he was actually the, quote, son of God, which is what Jesus' contemporaries believed about Caesar Augustus. But Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus, with their poems, inspiring us to their example, looked a lot different when these radical followers of Jesus set down to write their poems. It's the poem that Paul lifts and uses in Philippians chapter 2. You see, this diverse community of Jesus' followers, eating like Jesus with anybody who would come, raising a cup to Jesus as king, not to Caesar, talking about true greatness as being the servant of all, because on Jesus' last night with his disciples, he showed them what greatness looked like when he took a towel and a wash basin to do the role of a servant and slave Yeah, that informed their poem when they wrote verses 6 to 11. You see, scholars will refer to this example, this poem, as a kenosis passage. A kenosis is a Greek word taken from verse 7. That word, ekinosin, it means to empty. Ekinosin means he emptied himself. We're going to talk about emptying a little bit later at the end of our text, but for now, I just want you to know that this leader that they followed emptied himself instead of exerting himself. So when we look at our leaders today that want to be Christian leaders or political leaders in Jesus' name, is it a power over like Alexander and Augustus? What will their poems say? Or is it a power under, elevating? Because you can only elevate the masses when you move downward and empty yourself so that you might lift others up. You see, their poem talked about how this leader gave his life on the cross instead of taking life. In fact, on that cross, he went so far as to forgive his murderers so that when he tells us to bless those who persecute us, we can point to a lived example. Jesus didn't just say it. He lived it. And by the way, here's an aside. Every hard thing that Jesus asks us to do in following him, Jesus lived. And not only did Jesus live it, Jesus gives us the power and energy and example so that we can actually live it too. I'm just crazy enough to believe that the life Jesus lived is livable for us. He asked us to go and do likewise. He asked us to follow him. This leader ushered in a kingdom that was not of this world, not to dominate the known Grecian or Roman world, but to usher in a kingdom that transforms us and renews and restores us. You see, it's a poem about how Jesus never used his privilege for his own advantage and we should follow his lead. It's a poem about how Jesus divested himself of his own ambition and his own ego so that he might serve the least, the lost, the lonely, the left out, you know, like real Christians and leaders should, instead of rubbing elbows with the powerful who can do something for them. Jesus went to those who could do nothing for him so that he might give everything to them. And we should follow his lead. This ancient poem is about how Jesus was downwardly mobile so that he might become what he came to save and so to lift the masses to the very embrace of God. I would love it if you're an artistic kind of person to print out Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11, this example that we're talking about in big letters and just note how the downward mobility, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God, though he was God in the form of God, did not consider that something to be exploited or used to his own advantage. So he divests and empties himself, and you just trace the line down, down, down. And when you think you've hit rock bottom, you read Paul says he became obedient even unto death. Oh, by the way, draw that a little bit further down. Keep digging, because it was death on a cross. Only criminals and only blasphemers, only the worst of the worst would get that kind of death. So I'd say it's the rockiest of rock bottoms, and therefore, watch as the downward mobility When he went to the very depths, the very bottom, and tasted death itself, God does what God always does breathes life and renewal and restoration and you trace the line upward 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 so that god was pleased to give him the name above every name so that the name of jesus every single person living dead here or there would confess that this is what a leader and king looks like and if you are to confess him as your king you better live like him in his kingdom Because we see Wednesday and too many other days what happens when we confess Jesus with our lips and deny him by our lives and dishonor our king who is elevating the masses to the embrace of God. This is why this example took root and shaped the followers of Jesus from the earliest days to today. We'd rather just confess it and believe it instead, right? I mean, we'd rather just honor him a little bit. We'd rather just vote for him every few years. We'd rather just bark about it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram like I did this week. (laughs) That's easy. But when it comes to Jesus asking us to follow that trajectory, man, that's when it costs us. All right, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor. And I'm about to reference a cinematic classic. And I, will you keep that a secret? Because the classic I'm referring to is Will Ferrell's Talladega Nights. Okay? I'm not like wholeheartedly endorsing it. Okay? But I will tell you there is one scene that just, I mean, it, it is it is something. Okay? So in Talladega Nights, Will Ferrell plays a NASCAR driver called Ricky Bobby. And he is the epitome of this upward trajectory. The poem that he would have wrote about himself would talk about all his wonderful accolades. Because if you ain't first, you're last. This man wanted to be at the tippy-tippy top. He didn't want to go downwardly mobile. And so in early on in the film, you see him sit down with his family, his wife, his kids, his father-in-law, and his partner, Cal Notton Jr., Played by the great and underrated John C. Riley. And they sit down at this bountiful feast, and Will Ferrell's character, Ricky Bobby, prays. Y'all know which prayer I'm talking about now. <laughs> Will Ferrell's character says, Dear Lord Baby Jesus. And he thanks him for this wonderful bounty of Domino's and KFC, and of course, the delicious Taco Bell, which of course were his sponsors. <laughs> And then he goes, dear Lord, baby Jesus, I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my kids. And he says, Lord Jesus, for my father-in-law, we ask that your baby Jesus powers would heal his leg. And I'll let you watch it and fill in the blanks. And he says, dear tiny Jesus. And finally his wife interrupts and says, "Uh, honey, you know that Jesus grew up, right? And he says, now, honey, I like the Christmas Jesus best. I like the Christmas Jesus, tiny little baby Jesus, best. And it just begs the question, would we rather keep Jesus in a manger so that we can worship him and honor him? Or would we rather follow him to the cross? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we don't worship him. That's foolish. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if we are truly worshiping him as Lord, then we are living as if he's Lord of our life. You see, we want to look at Jesus how we want as tiny baby or this or that or American, white, Republican, Democratic Jesus we want to look and honor my kind of Jesus. I like this kind of Jesus. We want to d- to see Him when we want, just up to the point until grown-up Jesus asks something of us. You know, like loving our enemies. You know, like forgiving our enemies. You know, like blessing those who persecute us. You know, like honoring God by not hating and committing adultery and lusting. And you know, honoring God. God, and others. You know, all of the ways Jesus invited us to follow him. We'd rather worship Jesus in a manger, domesticated, than follow him to the cross. And with all that big, grand theology of this poem, you know what Paul does? Paul places verses 6 to 11, of course he didn't have those verse numbers when he was writing, after... Our verses 1 to 5. He takes the biggest theology and he puts it in the everyday context of loving relationships with each other. Why? Because you're only actually worshiping Jesus if you're following Jesus. And you're only following Jesus if you're living and loving like Jesus. You know, Anabaptist leader Hans Denk, and I've preached on following Jesus before, and I've quoted this maybe every time. Because we're an Anabaptist flavored church. Anabaptist was a renewal movement after the Protestant Reformation that believed that we should actually live the way Jesus lived. Hans Denk said, No one can truly know Jesus unless he follows him in his life. For whoever thinks he belongs to Christ must walk the way that Christ walked. Hans Dank said that in 1526, and it's no truer then than it is today. The connective tissue between the example in that poem and how we live it is in verse 5. Have this mindset. If you know Jesus, you're going to follow him in this life. This is yours in Christ. This example is yours in Christ. Paul is effectively saying, look at that example in the biggest way so that you can live like Jesus in the smallest way. I want to reread the earliest verses as we wind down here in a moment from the message translation. So if you're following Jesus together, Neighborhood Church, it will look like this. You ready? if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me this favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. And help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Just breathe for a minute. Which word hits you like a gut punch? Which word is an invitation for you to go and do likewise? Can I raise my hand and say the whole paragraph? (laughs) You see... What Paul is saying, if you're really being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus, then do me this favor, love like it. Do me this favor and love like it. A Jesus-looking, self-giving love. You know, a love that looks like unity, that transcends uniformity. To give yourself to what unites us as something bigger than what divides us. You know, the kind of love that values others above myself, to put myself aside to this other-oriented expression, because the life that Jesus calls us to has the arrows pointing out. It is never self-serving, storming the capital steps for my rights. It's the laying down of our rights so that we can get others ahead. The kind of love that's humble, a kind of love that is so unlike so much that we saw in our current leadership. It's a love that's only possible when we take our eyes off of ourselves to look at Jesus and follow him. Because look, whether you're Ricky Bobby or Adam Wood, Jesus does not want our sentimentality. Jesus wants selflessness. Jesus gave us an example of self-giving love so that we might follow him. I love the example and writings of Dorothy Day. She um, was the founder of what's called the Catholic Worker Movement, and she and another man uh, started these hospitality houses where people coming out of the Depression era could live and work and get back on their feet. And she lived simply and amongst the poor her whole life. She was a faithful Catholic that had a radical conversion and gave her life to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And so there was a story that was recounted by a man named Robert Coles, who is an author. And he talks about how the first time he met her, he walks up and finds Dorothy Day sitting with an older woman who is drunk. And Dorothy Day was intently looking to her, listening. Because Dorothy Day was always talking about how we find Jesus amongst the poor. And what we do to Jesus, we do to the poor. And she was seeing in this drunken woman the face of Christ. And she was chatting with her, listening to her. And Robert Coles is standing waiting to talk to Dorothy Day. Because at this point, Dorothy Day was already pretty famous and notable. Things had been written about her. People had come to visit her. She was a sort of American Mother Teresa. And so she pauses when she realizes that Robert Coles is standing there while she's talking with this drunken woman. And she looks up at him and says, Were you wanting to talk to one of us? And so Robert Coles, reflecting on that scene, said, She did not think too much of herself to assume that me, this author, might want to talk to her neighbor instead. She didn't think too much of herself that this man was waiting to talk to big, old, important her. That is a self-giving, self Emptying love learned by following Jesus' example. So let me end with this. This emptiness, I told you we'd talk about again, does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his godness, that Jesus took a break from being divine to vacation in Galilee and Jerusalem. No, 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 no. The exact opposite. Jesus' emptying was a willingness to move all the way down to humanity, to the rockiest of rock bottom, the downward mobility that went all the way to the cross, and that is actually the opposite of not being divine. No, it is the fullest expression of divine love that would give all. You see, where was God when the Christ emptied himself? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He didn't empty himself of divine love. He put it in its clearest and most self-giving, sacrificial portrait. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The Holy Spirit moving across the chaos of our earth, inviting people to give their lives to Jesus so that they may find life in the embrace of God and find that their sins are dealt with, forgiven, and there's actually nothing holding you back except your own choice to follow Him. God in Christ has broken down the barriers, the brokenness, the sin, the death that divided us. His arms are stretched out wide and the invitation is to come and follow. To worship and confess that Jesus is Lord in such a way that transforms you So it's less really about your belief and how your belief works itself out into your hands and feet. So that we might model that emptying involved in the laying aside of privilege so that God with us might become God one of us. Because God became who we wanted to save, so we have no excuse to go to the darkest and deepest places so that we might find God elevating. Now, it's true that what Jesus did on the cross is what only God could do. But don't forget that this mindset is ours in Christ. He has left us an example, Peter says, so that we might follow in his steps. So who and how will you love with that self-giving kind of love this week? How are you going to be with Jesus this week? in stillness and prayer? How are you going to learn from Jesus this week with the news on and the Bible open, looking at the disconnect and letting Jesus teach us and point out those ways that are inconsistent in our own lives and world so that we might learn from him? So that after the being and the learning, we can get up this week again and how will you live like Jesus in your everyday life this week? So let us follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Amen.
0: That was great. That was loud. I'm sorry. That's
1: fine.